Hey, uh, I have a quick message before we get into today's show. In this episode, the guest and myself, uh, we talk about the topic of mental health. And we do this intentionally as a way to help contribute towards raising awareness and the importance of helping yourself and others. Hopefully this helps take one brick down from the walls of this dated conceptions about going it alone. We cover topics of when, why, and how to seek help. We do touch on some stories or mentions of depression, suicide, and losing loved ones. At the end of this episode, I do spell out some resources for anyone who think they themselves might want to talk to someone, or it could be helpful to suggest to another person. Personally, I've used counselor or therapist many times in my life, and without them, maybe I could have gotten by? I don't know. But I'll tell you something. Each time I went, they rank as some of the best decisions and use of time that I've ever made. So if uh, for any reason today isn't your sort of cup of tea, completely understand, but I just wanted to give you a heads up just in case. We hope you enjoy the show. Thanks. What about this? This call is being recorded. Hey there, Squash fans. Welcome back to another episode of Squash Radio. I'm your host, Connor O'Malley, and we have another great guest, someone I've known for a while and so excited to have a conversation with her on the line. Originally from Philadelphia and calling in from Philadelphia, please welcome Kelsey Eggman to the show. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here with you. Well, a question I like to start off just to give the kind of quick context for people is, let's say you're at a cocktail party when they used to happen. And when people ask you, what do you do? What's your kind of go-to line? Well, I guess it depends whether it's a squash cocktail party or not. But I mean, now my answer has changed because I am a counselor and I'm no longer a squash coach. And so usually I say, actually, what I say is that I'm a therapist because people do not always know what the term counselor means. And they'll be like, are you a guidance counselor? Are you helping people get into college? And that's not really what I do. So I usually say therapist, even though my professional and legal term is counselor. I like it. So then let's give the quick, when you were in squash as your profession, what was the overview of what you'd say? Yeah. I mean, I think I wore a lot of different hats when I was in the squash community. I coached a lot of different clubs part-time and I was also, you know, worked at three different colleges or universities over my, I think like 10 years in coaching. So I was just like, Mostly, mostly a squash coach in college athletics, but also like an assistant pro at Germantown and Fairmount and Kingwood a little bit and uh, the racket club most recently. So yeah, I had a lot of really great experiences and met a lot of people doing that, which has been awesome. So over your 10 year career, what was the blend of amount of time within college environment and then at a private club? Yeah. So my first job out of college, my college, was that I coached part-time at Tufts for two years. I was the assistant of the men and women. Um, Actually, my second year was like the acting women's coach, whatever that means. I think it meant like more responsibility in the same pay. But then I moved, I was at Fairmount for a couple of months when I moved back to Philadelphia. And then I moved up to New York and I was one of the coaches of those teams. I was a women's coach for three years. And then I moved back to Philadelphia and took a year at Germantown, which is the club that I play at now. It's an awesome club. And then I went to Drexel from there. And this was all like while I was in and out of school and paying my way through, which was kind of part of a lot of why I was moving around so much. And I was at Drexel for four years and I was the assistant of the men's and the women's teams there. And then after I left my first year 
out, I was the assistant pro at the racket club while I was in school again. <laughs> and are you, are you still doing that now on, on the side or just well, you're, you're actually able to enjoy as a member? I actually have really, in, not that I didn't really enjoy coaching because I always did, but I have loved being able to play just for myself and actually have had the privilege of playing with some of the people that I've coached since then which is mm. so fun for me. So we just get to play matches and battle it out and laugh and remember the good old times. Yeah. It's been a nice Yeah, time. I think for us who's been working in this industry and especially wearing many hats, it is nice when we can just kind of sit back and enjoy what we love, which is playing the sport and connecting and not worrying about, you know, this other layer of our job. So I, I've had certain moments like that and it's just nice to be a customer again. <laughs> Totally. I hadn't realized how much I had missed that until I had the chance to do it again, which I really hadn't in in like 10 or 11 years. So it's been really nice. I've realized how much I really love playing. Yeah, it's like a fun sport. So uh, (laughs) just for high level, kind of the the topics that we're going to dive into today, and we talked about this offline. So it's really diving into your coaching experience and really going through your thoughts on that. And then also going into more of your more recent career of talking about mental health. So I'm excited. These are two topics I'm, I really love and I'm glad to spend time with someone uh, who's been doing it at the highest level. So with your coaching experience, we said you have a certain lens that you look at this. So let's talk through the lens that in looking back about your career and then also kind of what your thoughts are about it. Yeah, when we first started talking about me being on this podcast and and talking about this, I just couldn't get out of my head that the most, you know, the way that I see the world is really through a feminist lens and that that's how I see my coaching. It's how I see the students that I work with now because I work in a school now and that I often think that it's a very misunderstood term. Like people think that feminism means that women, you know, you like women more, you want to work with women. And to me, it really just means equality. And so that's kind of how I have approached, I mean, I hope my life in general, but especially like my professional life and the teams that I've coached, the individuals that I've coached at at clubs, and then like particularly the students that I work with in my school. So let's kind of talk through this a little bit. At a high level, what would you say are the differences of coaching men versus women? as a woman? Yeah, that's such a good question. I think that I think people make a lot of assumptions about what it's like to be a woman coaching men. And there really aren't, there aren't that many of us who did that. And I would say not enough. But I think that maybe the differences are not exactly what someone would think. When I was brainstorming about this, I think a lot of it is, is very similar to what I would say for coaching a women's team. But I think for me, I would go into coaching a new men's team knowing that they probably didn't know me and that there was a lot of like trust that had to be built because there's always this idea or this, you know, this knowledge that especially for our teams at Drexel who were really good. And I mean, this happened everywhere that I coached. There were just like men on the team that I could not beat on court. And for some reason, women, they get judged by that more than men do. Like if you have a male coach who you couldn't be sort of like assume well he's not his prime or you know that kind of thing but for women I think there's sometimes skepticism like well what can you bring to the table if you don't know how to do that on court and so I had to really be patient and show that I 
cared a lot about them. So you're like building trust and you're being consistent. I'm going to do whatever I can to like help you become the best player that you can be. And I would say like getting to know each player individually. So having them know that I knew them and I knew their strengths and weaknesses on court and I knew their strategy and what they needed to work on and that it wasn't just like a one size fits all. Because I think sometimes that can be a struggle with college coaching because you are one coach and you have at least probably 12 people up to like 15 or 20, depending on how many courts you have on each team. And so you're putting out a practice that's the same for everyone, but you have to make it, you have to try to tailor it to that individual as much as possible. So I think for the men's team, it was about showing them that I could really offer them something that was meaningful and that I cared enough to put in that time to do that with them. But I think that's the same for the women. I think the difference with coaching women is that if for me, it's like you kind of have this feeling that maybe your team isn't as important as the men's team, because that's certainly been the case in the past. That's why Title IX was made, was passed. <laughs> and so like you have to show the women that they are as important as the men's team to you and equal because it's not like they're more important. It's that they are equally as important. I like that. One question that came to mind and giving a little bit of context for this was, you know, I'm very mindful that you had options when you were graduating college, like you could have pursued many different angles. But before we get into that, on our pre-call, you brought up this really good context talking about Title IX and what it was like for women coaching women's team prior to Title IX and then what happened afterwards. So would you mind sharing that context that you you gave yeah, me? Yeah. A couple of years ago, I was reading an article in the New York Times about just what had happened to women's collegiate teams since Title IX has passed. And obviously, that was a good thing. It meant equal treatment like on the field or on the court or wherever you were competing for women, but it also meant equal funding by the department. And so that meant that the head coaches were getting paid equal amounts. And with that additional money, that actually made more men interested in coaching women's sports where they weren't before. And so before Title IX was passed, women made up 90% of women's head coaches in collegiate sports. And now they only make up 40% of head coaches of women's teams. So you can assume that most of the men's teams are coached by men's head coaches. And then also the majority of women's team are coached by men's head coaches. So I think it's like really changed things. And I also realized reading the article that they, they're talking about the importance of women being coached by women, which I think is so important. I think I almost wish that could go without saying, but it does need to be said. And at the same time, there was this part for me. I was going to quickly pause on that because then that could be, does that cut both ways, right? Or then are we saying men should be coached by men and women should be coached by women? Or just you're, you're trying to highlight there are intangibles on one side? I guess... I think it's important that both happen, right? Like I think when I was reading that mm -hmm. as a woman who was coaching men and women at the time, I felt like there was this lack of attention to how important it could be for men to be coached by women too. And, you know, at the time I was at Drexel mm -hmm. and so John White was the head coach and I felt like we had such a good balance of both teams having a man and a woman who they could talk to in different ways and who could offer different things. And I think that is the point, right? Is that there was a diversity of ideas and opinions and coaching styles that reaches more people. And when you just have 
you know, a lot of people who look alike, who are the same gender, like you don't get that same diversity. Well, I think that is where sort of I was going. I think the diversity of capabilities is really important. Because another point is, even if you're coaching, like not all women should coach the same and not all men should coach the same. So by having that sort of yin and yang, that balance from a coaching perspective, I think allows you to cover way more bandwidth and, and really help the player oh. succeed. So I think that... Yeah, I totally Yeah. But yeah, right now, to your the point, I love you brought up that stat that there's 40%. Like that doesn't seem like there's we're achieving that diversity in terms of the yeah. numbers in the field. Yeah, I think it's a shame. So in coming into coaching, and I think you kind of touched on this, so if it's the same answer, I understand that. But what were some of the challenges that you were prepared for when you were coming in as a young yeah. coach? I mean, I sometimes think I was a little naive going in which can be a good thing sometimes because you sort of feel like you can take on the world. <laughs> and actually, in my first job mm -hmm. at Tufts, the head coach, he, he was wonderful, such a nice, wonderful man, Doug Eng. But he was really a tennis coach. And so I think that, not that I was like a professional squash player by any means, but I think that the players on both teams really appreciated just like my squash knowledge, which was something that I was not prepared for because I felt very green at the time. Mm -hmm. well, let me ask the opposite of that. So what challenges weren't you prepared for? And suddenly you're like, oh, wow, this is uh, something I need to spend yeah. more time addressing. I guess I always felt embraced by the men's teams that I coached in a very like professional and warm way. But I was not prepared for mm -hmm. some of the discrimination that I felt like I faced, especially by male coaches of other teams. I can think of like a couple of them. And I just had not mm. anticipated that. And I think... <laughs> Can we just go through what an example of what that looks like? You know, I think part of what has happened over the past five or 10 years has been such a way to like really draw that out. And I think there's certain assumptions I can guess what happened, but let's talk about the scenario and then show how that made you feel or what would be the suggestion for how they could yeah. have done it differently. I think like I remember right off the bat, just there was always an assumption that I was the assistant coach, even when I was the head coach. One time it was announced mm -hmm. to like a whole coaching meeting of Ivy League coaches that I was the assistant when I was the women's coach. And I think there were even like some touchier things that I wouldn't like talk about openly that I felt like with other coaches, they would just say things that were really undermining. And I think that's kind of one of the parts of being discriminated against is like, usually people don't say like, I'm saying this to you yeah. because of your gender <laughs> or your race or your sexual orientation. Like it's not always that overt, but you get a sense after a while that that's the case. That makes complete sense. And it's never any one slight. It's just the constant building of many slights that then builds over time. And I think that makes complete sense. And I'm optimistic that these kind of conversations are becoming more top of mind versus people having to endure them like it sounds like you had to and right when you're we're trying to have a, an overall culture shift and so i think the more that we can really highlight the positive in terms of like how to interact yeah that's going to be better I, well i was going to add that i think i don't want to sound like i'm bitter because i think that it actually teaches you a lot and that when you're in a community that you care about like the squash community but you have experiences like that, it forces you to reconcile those experiences. And I think that part of me learning more about psych, my mom is a psychologist, 
and just like learning about it as I've gone on in my professional career, like you learn a lot about implicit bias. And so if people are saying things that I don't agree with, it's been helpful for me to kind of take a step back and say like, okay, why are they saying those things? And how can I forgive this person for saying something that like maybe they didn't really mean or they didn't have a chance to think about or they made an assumption that they would be embarrassed about because I think that we've all done that in our lives. And so like kind of trying to take a step back and not be as reactive as I think I had been when I was younger or when I was less accustomed to it or even like before this conversation became national and international. I mean, it, it has been, but I think even like after Me Too and like all of the racial reckoning that's happened this summer, like we're much more open to talking about these things. But before that was the case for me, you know, it's been helpful to learn how to work through these things and be kind to people who have maybe not been super kind to me in those moments. And it's not that I did that right away, but it's taken me years to kind of find a way to still appreciate and like really love that community that I'm in that for like for better or worse because I'm I think we all have our like ups and downs and we're better than our our worst moments yeah well I feel like that potentially just answered my next question which was what was something that you've changed your mind on or approach and I feel like that that would likely encapsulate what you just outlined but I'm still going to ask it just in case there's something else within that period that resonates with you yeah I think to go off of that when people experience moments where they feel like they're being discriminated against or they can be like justifiably angry about it and I definitely have been there before but I I now feel as though it's not where I want to be for me but it's also not helpful and I think that it takes people who could be angry but choose not to be and choose to like open a conversation about it instead to actually like close those divides because I think that's important to me especially like in this moment in time where I do feel like we're very polarized as a country I want to understand how people can have such different beliefs to mine and obviously I have such different beliefs to theirs and so I think there's like a part of me that would rather be effective than angry even though I think anger is appropriate in some of those moments I think that's a change that I've made like I'm just more open to like talking about it and trying to really come to some conclusion that's productive rather than just be searing about it. So the topic we're talking about, but it was a squash match and we have 90 seconds. What would be your 90 second advice on how, like if I was experiencing that, what would you say to me to try and address it? Yeah. You know, it's actually funny that you say that because that you just reminded me of this great moment. I had this wonderful kid that I used to coach. I worked really closely with him at Drexel and he was like a hothead, but he was really talented. And the challenge was always like roping him in and how can we get the best out of him? And he was having, he was playing a match. I can't remember who it was against, but the kid that he was playing was like, he was really obnoxious and he was getting under this kid's skin, which was not hard. And when we had our 90 second break, I said to him, like, this is not about him. I mean, if you let him under your skin, he is winning And he should be able to fist pump in your face and you can still go out and keep your head and do what you need to do to to get what you want out of this match, which is to win so the team can win. And for whatever reason, like that really resonated with him and he calmed himself down and he did go out and play like a really good match after that. And I think that's like so much of squash, just an analogy for 
the world in general. Like, how can you pull yourself together to get what you want and what's important out of your experience and not let the things you can't control, whether it's an opponent who's being obnoxious or like a barrier that you're not in control of, like, how can you transcend that and get over it? I feel like we all need coaches around us all the time to help us through life. I and mean, they really play such important roles. And like you said, that was definitely an on-court lesson in an effort to win a match. But also that's so applicable to just yeah. what we do in our day-to-day lives. Speaking of sort of success stories within your coaching career, is there any other ones that jump to mind for you? Yeah. When I was at Tufts, like I said, I was really young. When I was there, I was like 22, my first year out. And I was actually coaching a young woman who I had played against when, you know, the year before when I was in college and she was really good. She had really good talent, but she didn't always like believe that she could play as well as she could. And, and so we played against the team and she lost a close match to this girl and was kind of down about it afterwards. And I, it was the beginning of the season. They were in the same conference. So we knew we were going to play them again. And I said, you know, why don't you not for any other reason than just like improve yourself, but why don't you practice to beat her by the end of the season? Like that's your goal and that's what we're going to work towards. And so we would think about that when we were practicing and it was motivating for her on a day-to-day basis. Cause I think, you know, if we don't have goals that you can just get stagnant. And so we did end up playing them again at the end of the year and she walked on the court and she, I'm pretty sure she won in three. And when she walked off, she was like, I never, I never would have thought I could do that if you hadn't told me that. And I think, again, it's just this analogy for life, which is like, we need people in our corner. We need to feel supported. And sometimes we need to hear from someone else that we're capable of doing it. And that support, like that consistency and support is really important too. We were going to transition to the other topic. And I feel like this is such an appropriate transition of the other hat that, or the other career that you've now undertaken with your, using your psychology degree. And question, did you have a sense that you always wanted to head in that direction? (laughs) I really didn't actually. So like a little bit of background, my mom, when she graduated from college, she was a great athlete. She had played field hockey and lacrosse and basketball and golf. And She's in our high school hall of fame for basketball. And so she actually took a job coaching at William and Mary for years. And then she moved back up to this area and she coached at Westchester. She was coaching field hockey and they were really good. They were, you know, in in contention for the national championship. And she had these like really great relationships with her students. And she went back to Villanova for her master's in counseling and then eventually on to get her PhD in, in psychology. And so now that I look back at it, I, I just followed such a similar trajectory. I mean, I didn't really know what I wanted to do when I graduated, but I knew that I loved squash. And I also, because I was a really late starter, I really started when I was like 13 or 14 and sort of played a little bit in high school and then walked onto my college team. So I just always felt like I was catching up and I wanted people that I coached to feel like they had more help than I had. I wanted to support them in a way that I felt like I hadn't been supported. So I think that there was always like this love for working with people that brought me back to coaching year after year. But I I also wanted to do something that had a little more academic focus because I missed learning and studying. And so originally I'd gone back for my master's in English which I got at Middlebury. It was like this great program. I thought I wanted to teach English, but 
it was a program full of English teachers who were getting their masters. And, and they would say to me, you know, we see our students for an hour every day for a year, and then they move on to the next grade. And I was thinking, you know, I see my students for at least two hours a day, and then they come after for lunch and they eat in the office. And, and then we have them for four years and I get to watch them grow and develop and become these like wonderful mm. young professionals. And then they go on and get married. And I just really loved how deep that connection was. And I did not feel like I was going to get that as an English teacher in the way that I wanted, although I have nothing but respect for English teachers or just teachers in general. And so that after I finished my master's in counseling, I just decided I wanted to see if maybe psych was right for me. And I really had not taken a psych class since college. So I went back to school. I took a couple of classes at Drexel while I was working there. And then I applied to a program and I got in. And two years later, I was popped out as a counselor. So that's sort of been my trajectory. I did not, I would not have known, you know, when I started that that's where I would have ended. Yeah. I think as we've sort of talked about already, but it reinforces that the tools that we develop to improve our squash game apply in so many other factors of our life. And psychology was definitely one for me in both how to improve my game, but also then I was using it because I was in club environments and or working with different people. As I gained greater understanding of that psychology, it helped me perform better. So it's definitely been such an area of curiosity for me as well as also if I um, learn the techniques or understanding it, I, I just do better. So let's talk about your role, what you do now, and give a better understanding of that. Yeah. So now I work in a school in Philadelphia that is contracted with the school district of Philadelphia. So we take students who have disengaged from the school district at some point, and then they want to come back and get their high school diploma. So our students are 16 to 21. That's just that's just my age group. I love late high school, college age kids. I just think it's a really interesting developmental time. And our students, we have a, a majority minority school. Uh, we're in North Philadelphia and we have a hundred students and I'm the only full-time counselor there. Although I do have interns who help me out, which is awesome. And other programs that we work with, but I am really like the go-to person who is on staff for them. I do a lot of resource connection for them if they need different resources. And yeah, I think that I am kind of like ground zero. So if there's crisis going on in the school, they're always coming to me. It's a little different now that we are, we've been virtual since March. And I think we'll be virtual probably through the year. Although right now they say they'll reevaluate in February, but I just don't see us going back in the building, which has been a challenge in itself. So that sounds like a lot of students to juggle. How do you approach that? Yeah, <laughs> it is a lot. And it's it's sort of impossible to feel as though you are doing justice to every single person there. You kind of have to come to terms with doing the best that you can for as many people as you can. And then I think that is where in our field, we generally say that counseling is political too, because we have standards that we reach. And actually our school to have one counselor to every hundred students is actually a really good ratio because there are places like in Arizona, I heard just the other day that the ratio is like one to 900. I mean, it's crazy. I mean, I will say that I probably meet with 20 to 30 students a week and 
I mean, I talk to more than that, but that's probably who I'm meeting with. And even that feels overwhelming because everyone needs something different. And you have to remember, you know, there's just like a lot of little things to follow up with every person and to really feel like you're doing the best job that you can. It's almost impossible. It can be overwhelming. And then to add to that, (laughs) counselors are not counselors and teachers and I would say are not paid as much as I think they deserve. I'm obviously biased, but I think that we deserve more for our work. No, I mean, there's a huge discrepancy, right? If we believe in the future and we believe in the kids and like you look at the pay scales and where we place emphasis on our budgets represent our values. And so I would say there's a huge discrepancy there that why shouldn't teachers get paid $200,000 a year or $150,000 a year? Right. And I think that it would bring a different not to, I mean, we have, I will say our teachers at our school are just like the best. They care so much about our students and I love every single one of them. We only have five teachers really, because we are so small. But I think that if you opened it up and paid teachers more, and it was like a more respected profession in that way, because, you know, you can respect someone and say like, I really respect you, but if you don't show that in other ways, it doesn't mean much. Yeah, we would have a different talent pool and there would be more people to choose from and you wouldn't be underfunding schools. Mm. And yeah, it's been a real struggle. And I think that for me, you know, I came from a nice part of the suburbs of Philadelphia and I, I was lucky enough to go to a private school for high school. And I just didn't know so much of what I've learned over the last couple of years. And I think that far too often that is the case. We just there's not a lot of crossover and there's not a lot of understanding. Were there counselors at the school you went to? Yeah. I mean, I, I had a, I had a counselor. I don't know if that was her title. Actually, I ended up doing an internship with her when I was in school. It was kind of crazy that she was there when I was in high school. Now she's like the lead counselor, which is awesome. She's, she's amazing. And so she took me on for a year and, and helped me learn about like, I was doing middle school and lower school then. So I had the opportunity to do that. And there are other counselors. And actually, so I went to Shipley and they have done a great job of really trying to focus on wellness and positive psychology implementations that they've brought in. And they're working with Martin Seligman. And I was really impressed with that. And I don't think it was just lip service, which I think happens sometimes, but Shipley's had some, I think they had two suicides in the last 10 years there. And so they've made a really pointed change to target mental health and they do scans for every kid that's in the school, especially in high school. And I think that's, I'm very impressed by the changes that they've made. You said that they do scans. Can you elaborate on what you mean by that? So basically they have like a standard questionnaire that they would ask all of the students in high school. And I think that it helps them just see where people are. Are you stressed out? Like how stressed out are you? Are you having dangerous thoughts? And like, they've been able to really identify people who could use a little bit of extra support. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was not there when I was there. And I think it's an amazing change that they've made amongst many other changes. I'm very impressed with them. Yeah. If you wanted to do something like that at the school you're at, is there a level of bureaucracy you have to go through? Or is that something tomorrow? And sorry, I, I didn't ask if you already do it, but I was just curious about how that works in a different environment. Yeah, no, that's true. I think 
I'm very lucky at my school that because we are so small, I can just say to my boss, the principal or the executive director, you know, I have this idea and I think it would be really great. And if I put together a good presentation for it and tell them how we're going to do it, they're like, yeah, go for it, Kelsey. That's great. Yeah. And so we actually have done the same thing where we have like questionnaires for the new kids. And then we do like a review for the old kids to see where they are and how they're, especially with the virtual, like how they're handling it. Mm -hmm. It's just that for us, like that adds work to our load. And like, I don't have as many people to do that work. And so it just means longer hours, but it is so important that we have incorporated it into our practice. We're going to take a quick break to hear a word about our sponsor. So Lee, we want to thank you for being our first sponsor on Squash Radio. And just want to say you've sponsored other avenues, but squash is always where your heart's at. What does it mean to you to be sponsoring squash? I think there's just a, a lot of interesting people in the sports. I've attended junior tournaments, I've been to professional tournaments, and you can always get into some engaging conversations. And I think Squash Radio is an avenue of bringing those people to the forefront. And I'm sure a lot of people would like to listen to them. And sponsoring this, we're just uh, facilitating that. I think you nailed it. Is there anything else you, you might want to add? But I think you, you nailed it. That is, <laughs> that's exactly what I think. Because <laughs> I'm in like with hope. I've met Hope so many times and they've got into a little bit of conversation, but listening to that conversation you had with her, just she's just a squash through and through person. And I don't know how many listeners you get, but it doesn't matter. It's the fact that people can now relate to Hope as this person. Hopefully they're going to do that with me. I'm sure, because I'm quite a private person, I'm not, I've never been a person who hung around the squash circle of people. But when I do, I've got some very good friends and they will probably know me, but there's a lot of people who saw me at junior tournaments and a lot of my juniors were top players in the country. But uh, yeah, I, I, I think it's a great way of bringing some of the personalities from squash. That was Lee Witham, who is the CEO of Pro Sports LED, the sponsor of this podcast. You probably don't even think about lighting and neither did we until we started talking to Lee. And now we totally get the problem that Pro Sport LED is fixing. And we know maybe that's not you now or maybe not you ever. But if you know anyone who might be interested or need to improve their lighting for squash, tennis, soccer, you name it, it would mean a lot to us and our sponsor if you'd put us in touch. You can go to squashradio.com LED or email squashradio at gmail.com. That's squashradio at gmail.com. Thank you again, and back to our show. So one of the questions I was going to ask you to try and help, because a lot of this may be foreign to certain listeners, like we can believe in it, we can kind of have an understanding, but why don't we walk through sort of a story of someone of, mm-hmm. of how you help them and what this could look like. So you told me about a one of your students, Michael. And obviously, we're, mm-hmm. we're going to change a lot of the, the details to protect the anonymity. And I, I appreciate you just being willing to do this because you take people's privacy so seriously. So you can change as much as you want just to help illustrate the point of how someone like you and your role helps people on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, I'll keep it general. So we, we have changed his name to Michael. That's not his original name. And so He's a young man at our school. Um, He joined about a year and a half ago in July. And he came to my office one day because he was wondering 
if he was going to get kicked out of school if he was hospitalized. And he was very shy and sort of not totally willing to talk about things. But again, I mean, just to go back to how you deal with like a men's team when you're a woman, and I would say the same thing for a woman's team when you're a woman or a man, like just showing someone that you care about them, like genuinely care about them and Mm -hmm. that you care about their story and want to help them was meaningful for him. And so we were able to talk about like what he was thinking. He had been in a behavioral unit before he was afraid that he just struggles with suicidal thoughts and severe depression and anxiety, mostly depression. And so we started to talk about what that was like for him. And we used to keep, we used to actually still keep a log of how he's doing every day, you know, how his mood is, how he's been sleeping and how his energy level is. And we talk about the things that help him. And he was able to not go back to the hospital, which was great because I mean, it's a good place to be if that's where you need to be, but it's not, not where he wants to be. And he wants to be in school. And so over the course of those six months, every time he was in school, which was, you know, usually like four or three or four times a week, attendance was a struggle for him when he was feeling low, but you know, he'd be in school three or four times a week. And he was always waiting at my door to talk at lunch because he didn't want to miss class, which is amazing. And we talked every day that he was there. And he eventually, after about six months, he was very quiet and he didn't, he would tell me, I don't like to talk about things, but he was still there, which told me that he was getting something out of it. We believe that all behavior is purposeful. (laughs) And so him showing up meant something to me. And after about six months, he was able to say, you know, well, I have a speech impediment that has really like changed my life. And I had never noticed it before because Mm. he was very careful about what words he would say. It wasn't a stutter. It was a, it was just that there are certain sounds that he has trouble making. And he is so meticulous that he doesn't use words that he can't say. So I had never noticed. And hearing that, that he had never really told anyone before was amazing for both of us. I think for him to be able to like offload that. trust, right? Yeah. Found someone he could trust. And also it was like kind of a source of his depression and his shyness because he was embarrassed on a day-to-day basis. He had to always thinking about what he could and couldn't say and where he could go. And he was upset with family members for not kind of like helping him navigate it and maybe getting him more support. And his mother is wonderful. And I've spoken to her a lot too. And she sort of told me like the insurance ran out and we couldn't get speech therapy anymore. But this year he has been able to, well, I got in contact with CHOP, like the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and they were so amazing about helping him get an evaluation. And so his his insurance is actually going to cover it, even though he is not technically a child anymore. And Mm. he's going to potentially get speech therapy again, which I hope is helpful. And I I mean, I want to say he's a success story because he is reaching out when he needs help and he is like advocating for himself. But I will say like the pandemic has been really hard on him and he is not attending school the way that he used to. And it's like a struggle every day to make sure that he has what he needs. I mean, he's someone that I don't check in every day with many students, as you can imagine, that would be almost impossible. But he is one of the kids that I do check in with every day. And it's just like a work in progress. You know, I think it's like 
maybe more realistic than a success story is like we've had successes and then like we've had the pandemic, which has really set us back and we are trying to navigate it and being flexible and working on it and trying to make the best of it. And, and that's sort of where we are. And I think that's the way it is for a lot of our students, just like being pummeled by life and the complications that come with poverty. And I would say that like poverty in general can be traumatic in ways that like a lot of us in the squash community just don't understand. Yeah, <laughs> it's a compelling story in terms of, sorry, I should say it's a very moving story in terms of like it touches on so many aspects, right? Like just there's an element that let's say I didn't have your skill set or, or background to be able to really help him at the level you could, but me just being Michael, like, tell me what's going on. Like I care, right? And, and not just like, hey, how are you? Or brush it off as like, oh, just get over it, right? It's taking the time and it's it's realizing that everyone's struggle is real regardless of what actual struggle it is. And I think there's an element to go both ways in terms of people who don't have the economic means have real problems. And mm -hmm. but someone who's also struggling with depression, who has no financial concerns, that's still very real. And people of affluence are killing themselves. So the undercurrent is there, even though the source is slightly different. You know, and one of the things, it's funny, as you were saying, he had a challenge of speaking, I actually I always hate reading out loud. Like I just, it was the source of embarrassment would be so high and it's uncomfortable, right? Mm -hmm. I can't spell. I'm a terrible me speller. <laughs> but it took me the level of embarrassment I would have with that now was way diminished, but I'm in my 40s. Yeah. When I was a teenager, I would have been mortified and just hot and try and hide it, right? So there's something that comes with age and I almost feel like for anyone, it's just like, just get through the teenage years. It's really hard. <laughs> it is really hard. Anyway, not to make light of it. And I've lost friends to suicide at every, you know, as a teenager in my 20s and 30s. And yes, I'm early in my 40s, so nothing yet, but it's real. I think that what you said about basically just like everyone has problems and not comparing them, I think I mean, that's so true. And and when I was working at Shipley, I mean, those kids have real problems. They have totally different sets of problems. And sometimes it comes out in the same way as anxiety or depression or other, other ways. But like those problems are real too. And I definitely didn't mean to not mention that. I think that for me, and, and you and I have talked about this before, like what's so important is just like access to it, right? Yeah. And just to quickly break that down, because so right now you've given great context or insight that within a school environment that, and I love the contrast that you said, some have none uh, at other schools, it's in, would you say Arizona 900 to one, you're at 100 to one, you know, Shipley, that's probably slightly different. But in each candidate pool, if someone wanted to go find them, if you have economic means or insurance, you might. But still, I would say there is just such an imbalance to this in the world. And I, I experienced it deeply with myself of when I needed someone, you know, you need them right away. <laughs> not right. Like, can you schedule in five to 10 days when things don't feel good to you? Right. Right. So access is, it's really such a huge topic that we need to break down. But so what is that? That is my sort of armchair sideline experience. But with someone who's working within the industry, how do you guys talk about this? Yeah, I think... It is something that we talk about. And again, like some of it comes down to funding, which is why it feels political. And at the same time, I think that nobody should have to wait like five to seven days if they need help. I was just, I just gave 
my mom is teaching Psych 101 and she asked me to do a day on counseling. And so I didn't end up going in because of like quarantine, but I recorded this PowerPoint for them. And at the end, I sort of, I did some research about what Villanova offers to their students in terms of the counseling center. And Mm -hmm. it was like one of the things that they said on the website was someone will get back to you within five days. And again, I was like, yeah, that's not good enough. And I do think that like that can be expedited if people are a little more open. And if someone is struggling, I just so encourage them to reach out to a mental health care provider or even like a primary care physician and tell them what's going on. Because I do think that when someone hears, oh, I'm really struggling and I'm having like suicidal thoughts, if that's the case, that will bump you right up the ladder of when you're going to get met. But if that's not something that you feel like you have enough trust in someone or you don't, you don't know, you can't identify it, or if that's not even what's going on, it can be such a struggle. And so I do think that we just like, we need more funding. We need to decrease the stigma, which is like part of why I'm really glad Mm -hmm. that we're talking about this because everybody has struggles in their life. If you haven't had them yet, like you probably will have them and you will get through them most likely, but like we need to have supports in place to make sure that happens. And I just think that so much of that starts with funding those jobs properly. So there are enough people and that they stay in the industry because we talk about burnout all the time. And I will just say if I had burnout from as a professional, just just to be clear. Yeah. yeah, burnout as a professional. Exactly. Sorry, I should have said that. It's like so common amongst us that I'm like, yeah, burnout. We all know what that means. But well, no, I just want to make sure like, yeah, yeah, no, I, I get it. I just wanted to clarify. Yeah, no, I, I thank you. And I think it's like, it's hard to go in every day and often hear the worst parts of people's lives and not always be able to help in the way that you want to help even though sometimes all that people need is for someone to hear them and believe them, because I think that goes way farther than we acknowledge. And also something that you don't have to be a mental health care professional to do, but it's hard to feel hopeless and helpless. And like there's systems that perpetuate it and yeah, it gets tiring. And then also like, I do think that we're just overworked. I mean, For me, I could just never stop working and I would still have work to do. And you have to just call it a day at a certain point. Like this past week, for example, was supposed to be a short week for us. It was, we had Thanksgiving off and we had a half day on Wednesday, but I ended up working until like, you know, seven or eight o'clock on Monday and Tuesday. I was supposed to get out at noon on Wednesday. And one of our students who is in foster care, who's trying to live with her family again, said, will you be in my meeting? And I was like, sure, of course, three o'clock, I'll do like a one hour meeting. And it ended up being three hours. And so instead of getting out at noon, I got out at six. But it was also like, amazing to be a part of her, like rejoining Mm -hmm. her family and to see her at the end of this long meeting cry because she was able to live with her grandmother again was it was pretty profound. So there are silver linings too. And I think that most people who join the field look for those things and those are what like fulfill you and keep you going. But yeah, it can be hard too. I mean, yeah, I have so many questions. So, so one you, you touched on, you brought up that it's really hard because there's you, the human and, you know, Kelsey, but then there's you as the professional. And I'm just as like, how do combat soldiers deal with PTSD? It's, you know, for me, it's not a question of if it's, you're going to get it. So let's train that. And there's an element that you're dealing with 
some of the most challenging parts of human life. How do you prepare for that? How do you navigate that? Are you able to switch or does it come over? That's a really good question. I mean, I even think I call on my like coaching career sometimes to like, or even like playing, you know, there's like different parts of yourself that you can inhabit. And there were times when I was coaching that people would be rude to me and I would be like, it's my job to like model how to be mature in the situation and mm. handle it well. And I definitely, I think that the skill that I learned from that, that carries over, it's like so much of what goes on is not personal to me and that I'm just like there as a support. So I kind of, it's almost like, yeah, we try to maintain like a clinical distance and that that's a very hard balance when you deeply care about people that you're working with. And also like you chose to get into this profession because you like care about people, but then to also be like, I must maintain my clinical distance so that I can see what's really going on here. Yeah. And that's why we, you know, that's why we have supervision and we have treatment team meetings, but that's a hard balance to strike that I think every professional in the field is, is working on all the time. So burnout is certainly a prevalent one, it sounds like, and in, in top of mind. But would you call that number two in terms of how to keep that balance of personal and professional? Yeah. Yeah. And a close three would be the ability to shut it off at a certain point. Mm. This is time, you know, this is the weekend and I'm not going to think about work because there's literally nothing I can do right now unless a student is in crisis or something. I really love when they text me at like nine o'clock on a Friday and they go, are you awake? And I panic and I call them back and they're like, I'm going to try to get a new job. And I was like, that is not what I thought you wanted to talk about. <laughs> um, so yeah, like just trying to draw boundaries while still like caring about them and making sure that they are safe. Is there anything specifically you do to make that transition? Like going in from the work week to the weekend? You know, I think it's a cognitive skill. It's like compartmentalizing. I would say putting my phone away, but I don't. <laughs> I think it's really just about trying to be clear with them. So I had to tell a student, you know, we have off on, he wanted to meet on, on a Friday, like yesterday. And I had to be like, well, we're off that day. And then just kind of being okay with that. And I think actually, like, I think of those as teachable moments too. Like you have to be thinking about mm -hmm. the people around you and what their lives are like too. And, you know, if they are busy or it's like off hours like that's a good thing for you to realize so i think that there's that too but i think it's really just for me it's a cognitive skill just being able to turn it off and let it go and compartmentalize it until you know monday at 8 30 a.m i've heard this was within a business context but it, the same thing kind of applies in terms of how do we switch our brain right from what could be dominating thought or passion or caring he has a shutdown routine mm. and he, he would literally do like a little bit of a meditation. I put my computer into sleep mode, mm. which maybe I shouldn't do because then I can always quickly turn it on. Mm -hmm. Right. Like, so there are certain things I was asking more almost selfishly for like, <laughs> what should I do? <laughs> well, I but, think, um, yeah, it depends on like what your particular, I mean, some people have maybe more trouble turning their brain off, but I can do that pretty easily. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, you're, you're, you're lucky. That's good. In the last part of this section, I was just going to do, cause we did mention that access is the problem. So what would be, and I know each one is probably more specific uh, of like how to bridge that gap to get access, but what would be the sort of call to action to both how to 
maybe find the right person or the right avenues to pursue to find a, a therapist or a counselor or whatever helps you from the mental aspect? Yeah. I. And there's another part of the question. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but I'm totally blanked. Let's just go with how to find access. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I think that there is this misconception and I had this too when I started. I even said this to an advisor of mine in school. Like, I don't want to just be working with people who can afford therapy. And I mean, I found my therapist through Psychology Today, which is a website and you can put your insurance information in and they can find someone who takes your insurance. And I think that's an amazing thing because you don't have to pay $175 for a 50-minute hour to get a therapist. You can really use your insurance. And when I was in school, and I think this is important for people who are in school to know, I think you can get, for most places, you can get free therapy at your school in their CAPS program. But also, if you want to find your own therapist, mine was like $10 when I was at Penn. So I think that they do try to really make that possible for people because they know how stressful it is while we're in school. Outside of school, like, you know, there are definitely tons of therapists who take insurance. And so I, I just feel like it's important that people know that and that there's like a function on psychology today where there are so many therapists listed, especially if you're living, you know, in a populated area, but really, I mean, like anywhere, it's all over the country and you can just pop what you're looking for, you're looking for a male or a female, does that matter to you? Do you want your insurance to be used or not? Sometimes people really prefer for it not to be used because they don't want it to be tracked. And I get that too. And I think that that's like a great place to start. I also think you can start from referencing, like, you know, if a friend of yours has a great therapist, people definitely do word of mouth because I think a great therapist is, you know, like such a valuable aspect of someone's life. I have a great therapist, can't see her right now because of COVID, but a lot of people are doing telehealth. So I think that's a possibility as well. A question is, let me ask them both and you can pick whichever order you want, but when should you try to find a therapist? And then how do you know if you have the right therapist? Yeah, that's, those are really good questions. I mean, I definitely, if there's like a part of you that feels like you have something to talk about, there's no better time to see someone. But I really do believe that everyone would benefit from therapy. Like therapy is for everyone and anyone. And it is often cultural and we feel like, oh, like my family just doesn't talk about things. But this is a great way to kind of break out of those generational things that we all carry around with us. And so <laughs> when we were in school, we were encouraged to have our own therapist and someone pushed back once in the class. And our teacher said to them, like, what kind of therapist are you going to be if you don't even believe in your own craft and don't support it? And so, I mean, that's all I needed to hear. I thought that was pretty compelling. And I think even when we think we don't have stuff to talk about, there's always stuff that could come up and that you can realize about yourself. And I like to say to my students that they're really worth doing that work for, even though it can be hard sometimes. So just don't think it's, you don't need to wait until you're in a crisis moment or where you're crying or where it's like, feels really dire. I mean, I think preventative work is one of the tenets of our profession and that's like a great place to start as well. So all of the above, Connor, the answer is anytime you want <laughs> right now. <laughs> well, I also would completely agree, first of all, but there's also an element 
to say it's like if look we've if we've ingrained that we go to a doctor once a year which not everyone does but there's a reason for that it's just even if you're fine right so and there's no no one box at that so why not go get a check that it, by the way if you are in good health that's important to know well what was going on were you doing things differently like a lot of things it's hard when we're the ones driving the bus or flying the plane we don't know what altitude we're in sometimes mm-hmm. and could it just be cloud coverage or are we in a storm that we don't know is going on because yeah. we we vary altitudes so fast and or gradually I should say and then we can come out of the clouds and there's a mountain there what do we do so I love you know that, that was definitely yeah I love that way of thinking about it yeah and so there's a way to what I do know is if we don't have a plan for when things are going wrong that's not the best time to figure out a plan and that was certainly my experience when my mother was passing away that I needed help and it was hard. And even this was before her passing. So I was almost like trying to, I knew what was coming and I needed to have mechanisms in place to, so when she did pass, like I'm not searching then. And so it was almost in one guard, it was too late, but I'm glad I, I found the right person. And actually the two first therapists were not good. <laughs> For, this is almost like a dating advice. Like if you know night one, it's not the right one. Just walk away, right? <laughs> I think that, yeah, to your point, I think that's so true. Like it is about, it's almost like dating. It's just like finding the right fit. And I'm glad that you did. Yeah. So that's the thing of like, it's, it is like dating. It's like, I always say my dating advice is like, be more selective about who you're trying to find. Mm -hmm. And then if there's no red flags that night, give each other three times. Yeah. Right. Stuff could be going on. Yeah. But yeah, certainly if there's flags, just walk away. It's not worth it. Because if you're chasing the wrong one, you're not going to find the right one. Yeah, I think I had a very similar experience where I didn't, like the first therapist I went to wasn't a good fit. She even told me that like, it was actually before I went to counseling and or into counseling school. And she was like, oh, I don't know if you can do that. <laughs> like, you don't have the background to do it. And I, it just wasn't a good fit. She said a couple of things like that, that kind of like rubbed me the wrong way. And I, I think you're right to say that like, doesn't mean you have to stick with that person, but you do want to give them enough time to get to know each other and see if the style. Yeah. Fit is very important. If you're being challenged, recognize that that might be challenged in a good way is what Mm -hmm. I would say. Mm -hmm. But if they are making you feel worse, so it's a fine line, right? Like this woman, by the way, made one or two comments that I was just like, it was just so counterproductive, right? I mean, here I was asking for help, not in a good state of mind, trying to process what was coming down the pike. And this woman was like, don't worry about it till it happens, Mm. which was just not not the right way for me (laughs) and my personality. You know, it's like, I like to know and plan out what's going to happen. That way I have options available to me that in the situation I can adapt. Right. Anyway. And you're already worrying about it because here you are talking about it before it's happened. So <laughs> I don't know what you're thinking. Yeah. But yeah. I similarly, I'll share my, my unhelpful comment. I was, it was, this was many years ago and I was talking to her about how I had a date later that week. And she said, Oh, well, are you going to wear some makeup? <laughs> and I was like, just because I don't wear makeup to therapy doesn't mean that I don't do it on my dates, but that is also my own decision. So it was very not my feminist lens that we talked about at the beginning. <laughs> That's really funny. <laughs> but I did give her a chance after that. It didn't work out for other reasons. You did what? I did give her a chance after that. It just for other reasons, it wasn't a good fit. Sure. Well, 
like I said, this is certainly a topic I care deeply about. And I think the more, I actually hadn't phrased it that way, that if it's so common that we should be seeing doctors on an annual basis, like this should be the norm for us mm-hmm. just to be prepared and bring awareness to it. And I will do what I can and would love to help get any message out. So we're going to move on to the quick fire section, but I, I don't want to, I want to give you the last word. So is there anything else you might want to say about this topic? No, I just, I think everything we've talked about has been really meaningful and that it doesn't get talked about enough. And I appreciate that you're kind of like using this platform to help spread that word. Cause I think it's, I don't think there's anything that's like necessarily more important than that. Yeah, I would agree. All right. Well, we're going to s- switch gears into, uh, and there's, there's two parts to this section of the quick fire. And there was another guest I had on that was deeply involved in squash too. And it kind of made sense that for squash podcasts or where our connection is to squash too, why not ask some of these questions? So we have two sections now. The first section is just called 90 seconds squash quick fire with Kelsey. <laughs> so I'm going to go through a variety of topics and we're going to give the, the 90 second clock on the, you have to take full 90 seconds if you don't want to, Okay. but we're going to, we're trying to limit it of your observations or comments or experiences open to you and whatever you want to say about that topic. Are you ready? (sighs) Okay, I'm ready. Okay. So the first one is professional squash. Yeah, I'm like a terrible uh, consumer of squash because I really like love watching it, but I don't do it that often. And I think that's something I need to work on. But I do, I mean, I love watching it when I do. And I think working at Drexel and having the US Open there when I was there was such, it was like the best two weeks of the year. I felt very empty when everyone like packed up and left. But no, I mean, there's just nothing better than watching our sport at the highest level and getting a sense of what the players are like on court and choosing your favorites for like no particular reason because you don't really know them, but (laughs) it's fun anyway. And I just am also like so impressed with like the women's level is so high and Mm -hmm. I I think part of that is the parity in squash I think that's like really helped just women be able to pursue it and be interested in it and they've really impressed me so much and you know just like kind of make you proud to be a woman some of the best matches that I've seen at the US Open have been even in like the quarterfinals of the women's draw I feel exactly the same way in, in all the same things and a I'm not a good consumer and I think part of it is also because part of our roles that we've had, right? It's hard to just sit down. When you get two hours or three hours to just go watch what you want to watch in those environments, it's, it can be hard. But yeah, watching professional squash is some of and live and in person and near the court. Oh, it's just makes me giddy. I know. And, um, <laughs> and there is an element, and I, I might have mentioned this previously, but it, I still believe in it, that within my role at U.S. Squash, and uh, I give a lot of credit to Kevin, the CEO, still the CEO of U.S. Squash, but he, with us and the staff, and, and actually with Drexel too, we made the conservative effort to make sure that we achieve parity and prize money. And mm-hmm. we we had to fight the systems within our sport to break that down. Yeah. And so we were like, look, this whatever system there was, and it was a, because at the time, the men's and women's tour were separate. So they had different levels. They're like, we can't do this worldwide. This wouldn't be fair. And we really, we worked within the system year one, I think maybe year two. So I can't recall whether it's year two or year three, but we just said no. And we flipped the script where it's like, this is what we're doing. Call it what you want. It's going to be parity. Oh, I'm sorry. The way that we push back on parity in payout 
was parity and scale. So there were 32 men and they wanted us to send 32 women for less money. And so we said, no, we'll do 16. So that's how we chipped away at it. And then finally we said, this is ridiculous. We want 32, 32, and we want to pay equally. But it was really hard at that time. And to your point about the, the consumer doesn't know any different. They just see the prize money. But that has had such a cascading impact that the women's matches are often just as, if not more entertaining, especially in the, the semifinals and the finals and all throughout the, the tournament. Yeah. So, yeah. I think you said it Thank better, you but. for doing that. <laughs> no, I, I honestly, like, we need people who, who do that, who have, like, platforms and positions of power to take that on and champion it. And that's how things change. I think there's this, like, narrative that women's sports in general aren't watched as much and they don't bring in as much money and that's like the justification for not paying equally yeah. but then it's like okay well the u.s women's soccer team which has won the world cup i was about more to say than, that 100 <laughs> percent. like yeah. the men's they don't get paid as much and like they get watched more and have been way more successful so i think it's just a matter of people like you and kevin and u.s squash like taking that on and and then people will see through the result of it that it was really like the right thing to do. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for your work. Well, and it's, <laughs> no, but it's, I would say it's, we can, and I was going to mention the women's soccer, which is just, I mean, I was cheering for them, right? Like this needs to be addressed. And mm-hmm. I was able to do, play a small role of what I did in the overall game. But I think there's an element we can always say, what can I examine in my life and where do I either spend my dollars, vote, you know, what work can I put in? to try and make a difference. And that'd be my only thing I would encourage, like pick the way you might be able to contribute. Absolutely. I love that. So college squash. <laughs> oh, such a, a topic near and dear to my heart. I feel embarrassed that I haven't been able to watch as much college squash in the last couple of years because somehow it's just like always conflicting with my schedule. But, and then this year I was like, I'm going to do it this year. And then there's a pandemic. So that didn't happen so much, but It is like my favorite thing. I mean, there is just nothing better than being in the crowd with these people who, and and maybe sitting right next to someone who doesn't agree with you and and still being able to like be cordial with them. I mean, I remember we played this. You're talking about refereeing? Well, I was talking about just like cheering in general for different different sides Mm. of the, the team. But when we played this match against Yale, I was sitting right next to a Yale parent and I was, you know, the coach of the Drexel team. And, and at the end of this like unbelievable match, that was like 13, 11 in the fifth that it came down to the number ones. And it was just so amazing. The father who had just lost turned to me and he was like, well, that was an exceptional match. And I think that that's something that, you know, college squash gets, sometimes they get a really bad rep for kind of the misbehavior and I get that and I, I don't like that. And it was something that we always talked about with our students and tried to like help them with. But I also understand it because I have a temper. And so I think that there's like a part that's not looked at, which is like how most of the time these young people can be under so much pressure and working so hard for their teams and tired and exhausted emotionally and physically and mentally and they can still perform in a way that makes like us really proud. And I don't think we focus on that part of it enough because that's what was meaningful to me as a coach. And, and even just like watching them now that maybe some of them are still on the team and I can, I can see them play just to watch how, how proud you are of them as they 
grow and they handle themselves really well under pressure. And I actually like think that the same can be said for them refing themselves because I, I know that that's controversial, but I think there's opportunity to learn how to be impartial under the hardest of circumstances when you have a foot in the game and you want it to go a certain way. And if you can transcend that and learn how to be fair, I don't know many sports where you can learn a lesson like that. So I just love college squash. I think it's so interesting and dynamic. Yeah, it it really is. I mean, team squash is just so much fun Mm -hmm. and it really gives you, I love that it brings what is an individual sport, but then it's you win or the overall cheering is with team results, Mm -hmm. which I also think is like part of life. Junior squash. Yeah. My experience with junior squash has been very different from, I think, a lot of other people. Like, I never played it. And so my first experience was recruiting at a junior tournament. And I remember walking in and being like, this is madness. (laughs) It's just crazy. Just in purely how busy it is and how high the stakes are. I know there's like a lot of pushback after the Atlantic article. um, And I appreciated Kevin's email or like letter that he wrote about it. And I think that it was a mischaracterization of what most junior squash is like. I think we, we do have a problem with access and how serious people can take it. But I think that that's also not all of it. Again, I didn't play it, so I didn't have that experience. Um, I played a different sport that was similar to it, just like in how competitive it was. And it really put me off of playing that sport. And I, you know, didn't want to do junior squash because I didn't want it to be like that. I didn't know if it was like that or not. But I think that, yeah, it's a it's a tough animal because it's like it really filters you into college squash. And sometimes I think the best junior squash is like the, the bronze level where kids are really just playing because they love it and they are like enjoying the competition. And yeah. Yeah, I think at any sport where you're trying to be the best. So, I mean, think of figure skating, soccer teams, like it it just, it actually goes on. And this was under my role of director of Team USA and working with the USOC. And we get to network with a bunch of other people from different sports. The similarities were always there. It's always a challenge. How do we get the best performance out of the players? And then it's how do we select them? And those tensions, because people are investing so much of their time and they care about the outcome so much, tensions rise. Yeah. It's unavoidable. Yeah. I mean, honestly, like if you look at, I don't know if you've ever seen like soccer tournaments or like where they, they just go and play for the college coaches. Like it is so intense there too. So I, I don't know. I don't yeah. know. It's across the board. I mean, look at little league baseball. There are lots of examples of parents and empires having disagreements. I was going to say, maybe it is really about like the parents <laughs> leading a better example and, and hopefully yeah. if I'm a squash parent, I can live up to that because I'm sure it's really hard to watch your kid and not get invested. Yes. I, I think to spell that out, I think it's the parents who have to wrestle more with this. And part of it is because going back to young performers who don't know and they think something's unfair. And if you if you think that something's unfair to happen to your child you're going to have a reaction to it, right? There's a cascading impact. So, yeah. Switching gears slightly, but then refereeing. What are your thoughts on refereeing? Yeah. There's like a lot of debate about refing, and I I really do. It's such a hard problem because I I do love that like the college kids 
ref themselves often, but it is not a perfect system. And I can see when it goes wrong, how problematic it is. I just think there's like a good opportunity for growth and learning there, but you have to be like led by people who are doing that teaching. (laughs) So it's like a, a complicated problem. And then I think, you know, in pro squash, like, I don't know. I mean, it's so controversial. I would, ne- I mean, I listened to your talking to Hope Prokop, who is like a good friend of mine. And I was like, just appreciating her even more for putting herself out there like that, because I don't know if I could take the scrutiny that you get. you're just never going to make everyone happy. And like, that's not the job anyway, but I don't think I could do that. I think it's just too much, too much at stake there because people see it different ways. I mean, my only thought has been that like, I do think that people who played at a high level make really good refs often make really good refs because they are aware of what's going on on court in a way that's hard to know if you just have never played that way. I'm not putting myself in that category, but I do think that players make good refs often because they know what they are able to get and who's blocking and whether it's like a bad shot and you know, all that stuff. I will say, and I do agree players have a unique starting line for, let's just say you're trying to get better, you're trying to be the best referee. You have an interesting starting line. However, if you're then not acknowledging there's a different skill set to learn, so you're farther ahead. But there's a gentleman I used to coach in Chicago. He was around 3.0 to probably 4.1. Like he got better over time and, and that. And he, we would watch matches together and he was in the 90th percentile all the time. Wow. Like he just under, he loved the game and had a feeling for it, right? He was a lawyer, but he just he just had this mind that he could understand it because he absorbed all of the various nuances that you just described because he loved it so much. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of it, you're right. There are nuances that if you haven't experienced, you might not appreciate. Yeah. And I'm not like close to the, the idea that someone couldn't learn it really well because I know there are great refs out there who haven't played professional squash. I totally acknowledge that. I yeah. would not want to be one. <laughs> I just like can't. It's, it's a really hard role. Yeah. No way. What about, and this is a tough one, but just desired future plans for the sport. Like, is there anything if you could, you know, you're suddenly in charge of everything in squash and you'd be like, well, I think we should go this way. Or what would you want for the sport? I mean, I think for me, being someone who grew up and played at a public club, and kind of came about it in like really a roundabout way. Dominic Hughes was my coach at Berwyn. I think Berwyn was the first public club in the country, which made it possible for me to play. And I really appreciated like the access to it. And I think that my main hope for the sport would be that we can reach out and that we can incorporate like a whole massive group of people who have not been able to play. And I think that the urban programs around the country are unbelievable. I think that they've done just like the best job. And if we can continue to build off of that and make it accessible for people really up and down the socioeconomic ladder, I think that could just, that just would change everything for us. And it would make it, I mean, there's so much talent out there and there's so many people who would appreciate the sport who could contribute to it that we aren't reaching. And so like, that's always been my hope. I, I think it's important to me that we aren't just like a country club sport going through. And I, and I know that there are so many people working on that. I so appreciate all the work that they've done in every facet, like in U.S. squash, in these individual programs, um, in every city. I just like so appreciate that work that's being done because it's, it's really important to me. I agree too. And 
there's a gap in my assessment for us as a sport where we haven't really fully rallied, pun intended, around a vision for the sport. And I think what we have been so used to is we keep pointing towards the Olympics as the kind of like, let's get in the Olympics, right? And I think that that would change overnight the economics involved in the sport, which then if you have the economics, then a lot of things change. So, right. and part of this is, I feel like it falls back on me to, to like, if I keep complaining about it or I keep seeing it and I'm not doing something about it, well, then that's on me. But like, I would like to see a vision that we're getting behind like Axis 2021 or something like that, which I know US Watch is doing and, and a bunch, but it's, I think we all need to play a part in that. And we all need to be at the grassroots level. Like, what can I do? Yeah, to help, so. absolutely. I know I, I often feel like I can't complain because I'm not like actively doing anything to help it, but I see that in my future. So the one piece of advice I would say is for 2021, because I know we're almost done with 2020. Well, and I'm, I know I'm saying this under COVID environment. So let's just say this is a non-COVID environment, <laughs> but bring five new people out onto the court, mm-hmm. right? Like that is the power of the invite in exposing and just bring five and all five of them hate it. Okay. <laughs> well, you tried. Then, then the next year you bring another five, right? So in five years, you've brought 25 people on. Yeah. I dare say even if it's one out of 25 or pick a number, that's actually, that that's what fuels the sport. So absolutely, invite five friends in a year. Yep. That's my advice. I like that. I'm going to do that. All right. Now going into the non-squash <laughs> section of the quick fire and uh, feel free to, um, you know, these are some standard questions we ask every guest and if they go nowhere, it's no problem. It's on me, but uh, it's just always interesting to unearth new answers. So we start off with an easy one. Just do you have a favorite documentary or movie? Mm. Oh, documentary or movie? Can I? I have two. Those are very different categories for me. I feel like I have two. I know. If you had to pick as a recommendation, which one would you go? So for my favorite movie has always been Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. I really like Charlie Kaufman because he's just like I don't know wild, and I like movies that kind of like stay with me. You know, like kind of yeah, they like stay with me, and so I love that movie. Jim Carrey and Kate Winslet, they're awesome. And my favorite documentary, I just saw it recently, it's called 13th. It's about the 13th Amendment and by Edward DuVernay. It's just really important to watch right now, I think. Mm-hmm. And I can't recommend it enough. It, just to like kind of help, it helped me open my eyes a little bit more. And I don't know a ton about the Constitution. And so that was helpful for me to just learn a little bit more. And it's done in a really well, really good way. Yeah, it's a very powerful documentary. And it, there's another one, very different subject matter, mm-hmm. but I think it was very comprehensive as well. And that's the the social dilemma. Both kind of top the way that it approached it was we might know each part of this as like a individual aspect, whether it's for the 13th with the voting rights or, or or this or incarceration, but then to see it all within you know I think it's 90 minutes or so. It's just so well done. And it's powerful and it's it brings together in such a compelling narrative of the reason why we we're in the position that we in as a country. And it gives a greater level of understanding. Like you said, what we do next, that's, I think the day-to-day challenge and, and how we move forward, but it certainly <laughs> brings greater context and of understanding. This is an interesting question for you. <laughs> what is something that gets you fired up now? 
this can be uh, i'm going to give some quick parameters this can be in squash world or out of squash world and it can be either something positively that gets you really excited or obviously the negative of like uh, i get so frustrated so that's the question what gets <laughs> i'm only laughing because i feel like we all know that i get fired up yeah. about stuff <laughs> in the good yeah, or exactly so yeah, for me, what is it that gets me most fired up? I feel like, you know, I'm always trying to be more positive in my life, but I feel I feel like I have to go negative on this one. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean like it's it's everything that we have talked about already today. It's like kind of what I've structured my life around, which is just like and I have been this way since I was a child. I just whenever I feel like something is unfair or unequal, like if there's inequity, like I just, I hate it so much. And it's, it's been like a driving force in my life to learn more about it and learn more about the experiences of others. And even like learn about my own experience, which like, I think sometimes we don't fully understand until we see it in the context of a larger structure. And I think it has been, what's that old saying? Like the truth will set you free, but first it'll piss you off or something like that. <laughs> I didn't know that one. That's a good one. It is a good one. And I think wow. that I have finally, I feel as though I'm coming through the other side of it where I'm like less pissed off and more like, okay, what are we doing about it? And how can I help? And what can I do that's going to make a difference? And I think if you spoke to some of the people on my teams that I've coached, especially like, no, I would say like both teams, but especially the women's team, like this is something that we talk about a lot. And just like how on an individual basis, like you can help that inequity or people who are facing it and how they deal with it effectively. Yeah. That could almost sound like that. Uh, that's my answer. Let's go to the opposite side then. So what is something, and it can be literally like something physical, like a, a water bottle, what have you, or an activity that brings you disproportionate happiness. And the one caveat here I would say is, you know, obviously uh, potentially friends and family friends or pets would bring us, those are the obvious ones that bring us a lot of happiness in life. But so what is sort of the non-obvious thing that you do that brings you disproportionate happiness? Oh, I was going to say my dog, but I can't say my pet. <laughs> I mean, if it's truly that, that's fine. But like my dog brings me so much happiness. I just feel like that that's, uh, I'm, I'm going to go. Yeah. So what is the non-obvious thing that you do? I mean, this is very simple, <laughs> kind of stupid, and I'm a little embarrassed to say it, but if I get a good night's sleep, I'm just a better person. <laughs> I can take on any challenges, like I'm more positive, I'm kinder, and like, I just, there's no better feeling for me than like really feeling like I've gotten a full night's sleep, which I think as I've gotten older has been more elusive, <laughs> so I appreciate it more. I don't know, that's such a... No, I, it's a brilliant one because then also here, it's not obvious how to get good sleep, right? And I think it, it can be personalized, but there's also some universality to it. So A, like we sleep better in a colder environment. So mm -hmm. lower your temperature down, right? Mm -hmm. If you're someone that is sensitive to the field and you need to invest in a good pillow and invest in good sheets, if that will help you. So there's a bunch of ways that you can tackle it. Here's a big one for me was, um, and I used to get around this by um, sunlight. If it comes into your room, I used to put on the, the mask on the eyes, but then I would oh, still I be waking that. up. Yeah, but I'd be waking up early. Then I learned if there's sunlight coming into your room, 
and your skin is exposed to it, the skin will start telling you to wake up. That is so interesting. So this is why everywhere I go, I have blackout curtains. You know, and again, that, and you're right because, yeah, I just feel better. And it's still, even with all those things, I'm not sitting here saying I get a perfect eight hours per day and all that stuff. But it's also how I react to if I do get woken up in the middle of the night, I used to get really angry. And then I'd be forecasting what my day's going to look like. And suddenly I'm not in a good, not feeling great versus just now I kind of approach it like a, you know, like a tough match. Like you're going to play against an opponent. And squashing, like this is gonna be a tough match, right? Ugh. But you don't give up and you don't get angry. You're just like you're kind of mentally preparing for what's coming next. Totally. All right. The next question is: If you're gonna give a TED talk, are you uh, familiar with the? Oh, I watch so many TED talks. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I, I love watching them too. So, but here the the rules are: It couldn't be about something that you're known for. So. Mm-hmm. What would be something that you would want to go explore and share or something that you already do, but people don't know you for it? Hmm. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Like something you would go research and bring your research to the forefront. Yeah. Or, or you know, there's something, well, people don't know about this about me, but I'm a chess master, right? Like <laughs> for you, that would be, okay, well, that's, <laughs> we didn't know that. So it can either be something that you're just not widely known for, that you already have a hidden talent, so to speak, or something that you're curious about to go learn and explore. Yeah, I'm I'm thinking of a project that I did when I was in grad school, actually, that has led to like some of the work that I do with my students, which (laughs) is like, I'm really interested in sex education in this country. And actually, there's a woman who did a TED Talk on it, who I like who started me down this path of interest and her name is Peggy Ornstein and she just talks about the difference between like sex ed in this country and in Holland and how they have like really different outcomes that we would aspire towards but they just go about it really differently i thought that was so interesting and i think that i see it every day we have a lot of pregnant and parenting students at my school and i'm i'm interested in like the cultural aspect of it and the way that people think about it because I think it's different from community to community and that just fascinates me. And I wonder how we could have a more comprehensive like sex education and more like I would say just openness about talking about it because it is something that like everyone does. So isn't that something we should talk about with, with kids, especially who are starting down that path? My joke I was going to say early on is like what sex education, which I think highlights the fact that there isn't a lot of education in this area. And perhaps I'm saying like when I went, you know, as a teenager, or even you probably want to start earlier than a teenager, but that wasn't really talked about. And also in this case, I think that you do want messaging specifically for boys. You do want messaging specifically for girls, but then also like together, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah totally. that'd be fascinating. We like separate it and it's very gendered and we have a lot of abstinence only in this country. I think that's what you're alluding to and it like does not work. So yeah, which really interesting. Yeah, which by the way, I think there's high benefits to abstinence. The difference is that not talking about it doesn't solve any problems. So right. make every choice you want like, and say, try it. I mean, I would say the same thing is like that relates to alcohol, that relates to drug use where saying just don't do it won't work. It's what's your relationship to alcohol or drugs. And if that dependency goes up, perhaps there's underlying issues that need to be addressed. Throw back to mental health. 
So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think in her podcast, she talks about how when people are more open, especially with young women, they actually get the outcomes that they want, which is that women have sex at a later age and they have fewer partners and they are more protected. And so it's like talking like to your point, talking about it does not mean that everyone's going to have sex. Like sometimes people do choose abstinence. It's just that they're like better informed about it. You mentioned a name at the beginning. I, th I think I missed that. Who did you mention? Her name is Peggy Orenstein for anyone who's interested in mm -hmm. a good talk. Great. The last question, bringing this to a close, is I usually ask if, if there's any books that you would recommend, but I, I'm also, since this is a podcast, are there any books or podcasts that you might recommend to others? Hmm. I am a big podcast listener. I used to be made fun of for it when I was in school because I'd be like, I heard this podcast and they'd be like, of course you did. So I have, <laughs> I have things that come to mind. There's this great podcast that I just listened to called 1619. It's like a New York Times podcast and they just talk about the history of slavery in this country and how it really still stretches into today, which I found very interesting. I, I just learned so much. It's pretty short too. And then there's like the psych podcast, like Hidden Brain and Invisibilia that I love. I like that. I like them. Yeah, nineteen six. Sorry, sixteen nineteen. That was a tough one to listen to. I I kind of had to take a break from it because it was that hard. And then there was another one that I started listening to, Constitutional, and uh, there's another one where it talked about prohibition. And all basically, when we go when we go back to those errors, it just shows how prevalent the injustices were, and it goes back to the roots. And it's the injustices, in my opinion, still very much prevalent today and we need to reconcile it but it, it helped give context that this is the fight is still there and it's we've all uh, different generations have fought it at different points but it's still not solved and you know i think we need to do our part yeah absolutely and i was going to mention oh another one that was just really oh there's a podcast called nice white parents that i listened to recently as well and it's like more current but just how like we can have our best intentions, but if we're not aware of like everything that's going on and who we might be bulldozing in the path towards what we want, you know, those inequities continue. So that's a good one too. Yeah. That was another great one. And, and also how I love the comparison that it was set more recently, but then also like, oh, this happened 50 years ago. And like you said, all with good intentions, but then not the, what we probably say is desirable outcomes. Yeah, sure. Well, we're going to bring this to a close and I appreciate all the time that you take and, and sharing and talking on some topics that, you know, not enough people are, are always comfortable sharing. So thank you. And the sport is obviously fortunate to have had someone like you dedicate so much of your life. And I know you'll still continue to have it involved in the sport, but thank you for everything that you've done and continue to do. Well, thank you, Connor. That's so nice. I really appreciate your podcast. I love like what you're doing and I think it's, it's awesome. So thank you for having me. Anytime. We got to do one again in the future. So uh, get the updates. Thank you all for listening to our episode today. And as I mentioned at the beginning, we were going to share some resources for talking to someone like a therapist, counselor, or specialist. And just so you know, there's no threshold that you have to hit. There's no need to compare yourself to others. If you just feel like sharing what's on your mind and you want to talk to someone else, that's not only okay. There are people who want to talk to you. If you go to our show notes or on our website or social media, 
you'll see the post covering some of these resources. But the big one uh, you go to right now is psychologytoday.com. That's psychologytoday.com. It's a great resource to start to find someone near you, and you can filter in all sorts of different ways. Uh, the National Suicide Prevention Hotline is 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-8255. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you again. Thanks.